Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether The Road should be a reality TV show. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. If civilization collapsed, what essential information would speed up our recovery the most? It's a fun dinner party topic and a regular feature in science fiction novels. But Lewis Dartnell actually tried to write a book with all of that most crucial science and technology, which he published as The Knowledge. It's both an entertaining read and an informative one that has heavily informed 80,000 Hours' views on whether and how quickly humanity might recover from a major global catastrophe. My research colleague Luisa Rodriguez and I wanted to hit Lewis up with some practical questions that he didn't get to in the book, including whether it's actually time to set up a serious institute to collect and safeguard useful knowledge for future generations. Unfortunately, Lewis was down to call in from home despite having become a dad just a few months ago. There's no housekeeping this week, so without any further ado, I bring you Lewis Dartnell. Today, I'm speaking with Lewis Dartnell. Lewis is a science communicator and author of multiple books that I know are popular among listeners to this show, including The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm, and Origins, How the Earth Shaped Human History. The Knowledge actually won multiple awards, uh, including the Times Science Book of the Year, and it was also a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller. Lewis got his start in biology at Oxford and then astrobiology at University College London, and he's now a professor in science communications at the University of Westminster. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Lewis. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I think this is going to be quite an interesting chat. Us as well. And I say us because I'm joined today by my colleague and previous guest of the show, Luisa Rodriguez, who has thought a lot about how humanity might recover from various different sorts of collapses. Welcome back, Luisa. Thanks, Rob. I'm happy to be back. Okay, so I hope we're going to get to talk about whether humanity should seriously invest in a more comprehensive version of the knowledge, and also what's most likely to impede our recovery should things really go belly up. But first, as we always ask, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's important? Oh, so as you mentioned, my my actual academic field of research is in, in astrobiology. So I've got two PhD students at the moment, and one of them is looking with me into aspects of what signs of life on Mars we'd be looking for with, with our next generation Mars rovers, so so-called biosignatures, and how those are effectively nuked by the cosmic radiation on Mars. So, you know, how long would these things stick around for before we could detect them? And then the other half of, of my career in, in the professorship at University of Westminster is in science communication. So I've been working on the new book. It will be book five after uh, the knowledge of what we're talking about today is, is book three. So it's... Um, you know, trying to trying to balance the the science writing and the communication against the science research is it something I, I you know I really enjoy. Yeah, I think you might be slightly bearing the the lead as well because you've got you've got something else going on in your life, in your life at the moment, right? <laughs> might be trumping the work the last few months. <laughs> I now have a uh, seven week old baby, Sebastian, who was a bit boring at first because he mostly slept yeah. and then just ate, which wasn't really something I'm involved in now. Um, but we had our first smile this week, and it just broke my heart, oh. and it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Um, I, I'm all about being a father now. Yeah. Sleeping and eating are things close to my heart. <laughs> well, well, me too. It's just, it's not particularly interactive when, yeah, yeah. when you're not getting involved in it. Okay. So let's jump to the, jump to the punch here. We've got this big common interest in understanding how humanity would recover from a major catastrophe that locked us back, that knocked us back a long way. Yeah, collecting a bunch of information that would be useful for survivors uh, to a disaster was the topic of your book, uh, The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. I guess, yeah, to get straight to the most important issues here, what's one thing you think humanity will find especially difficult? Oh, sorry, will, would find especially difficult about recovering? <laughs> do, you, do you know something <laughs> that I don't yeah, know? Yeah, sorry, knock, knock, knock wood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would find especially difficult about recovering to our level of technology, um, say after a pandemic that killed 90% of the population or something around that level. 
Yes, I mean that, that's that's the premise of the book. That's that's the premise of the knowledge. And although, although I feel I should presage my answer by saying I wrote the book not as a prepper, not as a survivalist, not as someone who thinks the world is about to end. Although I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the discussion about what, what existential hazards and risks are out there. But I wanted to use this notion of the loss of everything that we take for granted in our everyday lives. Let's just imagine you wake up tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning and civilizations collapsed and, and disappeared. And you have to ask yourself, what, what do I actually know how to make or do? How could I go about rebooting civilization in the way you reboot a computer after it's crashed? And so in basically page one, uh, chapter one of the book, I look into slightly different scenarios about what situation you might find yourself in and how that would modify or change the trajectory you need to go through to try to recover. And as you're asking about, there's, for many good reasons, we would have to reboot civilization after some kind of global catastrophe, after some kind of doomsday event or apocalypse, along a different trajectory, along different developmental lines than we did first time around in our, in our own history. And things like access to fossil fuels, to, to sort of cheap energy, so coal and oil, is going to be very different today than it was in the 1700s, 1800s, because we basically sucked up and dug up all of the easily accessible, certainly certainly oil, although there was a lot of coal left quite close to the ground in a place like China and Russia. So I, I play around with ideas of like a green boot or sort of steampunk history about you to have different mishmashes of, of technologies being reinvented in a different order to what happened in, in history 1.0, if you like. Okay, so it sounds like you think probably energy is the is the big issue or the or the the most serious bottleneck that people might face when they're rebuilding. Well, I mean, I sort of break down the, the components, the, the Lego bricks, if you like, of of our modern world of, of, the, of the current technological civilization, and in each of the chapters, go right back to the basics of why do we need this? What does it do for us? Um, how is it hiding behind the scenes in ways that are probably invisible to you if it's being done right in, in the modern world? And it is energy. Energy is, is of, of course, important. But also materials. And, you know, you, you learn about it at school in the different ages of, of human history, of, of the Bronze Age, of the Iron Age, of the, the Steel Age, and titanium, aluminium, and tungsten, and all these sort of exotic supermetals that we now use. And within the aspect of metals, even if you were to be trying to reboot, to recover let's say, a thousand years after whatever the event was that collapsed everything. The metal might have been dug up. It's not going to be underground anymore, but it's still there. It hasn't been consumed. It hasn't been destroyed. And even very, very corroded metal is basically now just a very rich ore that you would have dug up anyway. So you'd apply exactly the same technology to sort of smelting and then blacksmithing and forging the, you know, the bones of a collapsed skyscraper a thousand years in the ruins of Manhattan or London that we, would, that we did do in the 1600s and 1700s. So what I tried to get at in the book and the knowledge was using this thought experiment, using this playful hypothesis, um, the scenario of the post-apocalyptic world to answer as a genuine question, but by doing so looking into our own history and, and how we got to where we are today and, and why the world looks the way it does that, that we live in. I guess one challenge that kind of fits fits in between material and energy is is concrete, which is I guess a material <laughs> that will be very abundant uh, after after the apocalypse, but somewhat difficult to repurpose, more difficult to repurpose than metals, and it, it's a material that requires an enormous amount of energy to to produce. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, so I'm I'm a bit of a concrete fan, and I got <laughs> massively into concrete <laughs> when I was researching uh, the knowledge because when you think about it, it it is an absolute 
wonder material. It, it's kind of much maligned nowadays and 1960s regeneration and god-awful looking buildings. But, but when you think about it, it is liquid rock that humans have invented, that you mix some stuff together, you've dug up from underground, and then pour this slurry into mould, and then it sets hard as stone, hard as rock, in whatever shape you want it to be. And particularly when you mix that technology, and things like concrete and cement go right back to, to the ancient Romans, and when you mix concrete technology with steel and sort of reinforced bars, you now have something which is incredibly strong in both compression and, and tension. It, it absolutely is a wonder material. But as you say, even though there's going to be lots of this concrete lying around after the apocalypse, it's kind of hard to, to get at and to reuse because it is now just lumps of lumps of rock. And one of the problems of, of the modern world and climate change and global warming is the immense amounts of CO2 which are released in synthesizing, in creating concrete. But, but I think it's, it's one of those things you would, you would probably want to reuse concrete as a, as a very good option whilst going through a recovery after, after whatever might end our current civilization. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about coming back to the physical and energy issues in a later section, but as far as the knowledge goes, the book wonders about how we could rediscover essential information. So like germ theory, for example, I wonder if we can fix uh, any of that ahead of time, if it isn't already. I don't, I don't think it is for most things by storing some of that information kind of across somewhere, somewhere safe, maybe multiple places across the world so that it could be rediscovered if it was ever forgotten. Hmm. One of, one of the ideas I played with in the knowledge was what would you most want to whisper in someone's ear like 2000 years ago, or if someone's having to go through this process again, that once you've told someone, it kind of makes immediate sense, or, or you give them a, a very simple set of instructions for how they can make something or build something or demonstrate something for themselves. And for me, the one that stood out by far the, the most significantly was this idea of germ theory and how that links to the microscope. That imagine that the centuries and centuries and centuries of human suffering through history, because we didn't have the right idea about why people got sick and why they died and why plagues seemed to spread very quickly through cities and from person to person. So if you told people that the reason people get sick isn't because of bad air, malaria from, from the Italian. It's not because of some fractious god has, 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 has smited you. It's because there are things which are invisibly small. They're so small, so tiny, you can't see them with your naked eye. But they're there and they get into your body and they multiply and you pass from one to the other. But tell you what, this is how you make glass from scratch. And, and I give the recipe in the book. And actually one of my favourite maker projects when I was researching for the knowledge was making some Robinson Crusoe glass from scratch. I went to a, a, a beach... And I got sand and uh, seashells or chalk and soda ash, sodium carbonate, and made some glass from scratch in the course of a weekend, which you could then fashion into a lens to manipulate and control light and then build a microscope from it. And, and there's nothing stopping the ancient Romans over 2000 years ago building a mi microscope if only they'd known what to do. And this gets to right the core of, of your question there, Louisa. If you just tell someone the most useful thing to do or to try, you don't have to stumble across that invention again serendipitously, like we did in our own history. You can leapfrog straight to it, cut out hundreds of years of fumbling around in the dark. And perhaps the best way of doing that would be to build these repositories of human knowledge. Um, and this idea has been, been couched by, by different authors in the past in, in terms of something like a manual for civilization, which the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco talks about. 
or a total book, a book that contains the sum total of human knowledge, but, but also organised in a way that is, that is useful, in a, in a sort of progressive, holding your hand and leading through the, the steps of the ladder, unlike something like Wikipedia, which is an absolute mess of information just, just dumped in there. And you might then have these repositories of the, the sum total of human knowledge dotted around the globe and, and maybe have some big conspicuous markers that, that point your post-apocalyptic uh, survivors to where their, their local library for rebooting is. And, and I appreciate this starting to sound a lot like sci-fi and, and this sort of idea has been <laughs> explored really well in, in some, some cracking books. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's, it is an intriguing idea. It is something that if you took the risk of catastrophic civilization collapse seriously, and I think there's good reasons to take that seriously, there are pragmatic hands-on things we could be doing about that right now to dramatically increase the chance of a rapid bounce back, of a rapid reboot. Did you kind of, in the process of writing the book, form a view at all on like kind of how much we're already covered to some extent by the fact that there are just libraries all over the place? And I mean, at least after a pandemic that didn't destroy all of the infrastructure, there'd just be so many artifacts that kind of indicate knowledge or like strongly, strongly imply knowledge, all could be, uh, you know, reverse engineered and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's it. You, you, You could find lots of cars or automobiles lying around and have a good idea of, well, this is what this bit does. This is the piston, this is the crank, this is the cam. You you might not need to reinvent everything from scratch. You need to reinvent the wheel of the car. Um, you could just copy what you find there. But but I didn't find that a particularly satisfying answer to give for the knowledge. I want to show how you could actually make things from scratch yourself. Although I play around with the idea of sort of scavenging and foraging and copying what you find around you from the, from the detritus and the remains of, of our civilization in chapter one of the book. But I wanted to quite quickly move on to let's just assume a blank slate. You're starting from scratch. You don't get to copy stuff or scavenge or forage. How do you go back to, to basics and, and make it yourself? And I think the problem with the sort of information that's stored in libraries at the moment is it's not structured in a particularly useful way. It might, it might explain how we do something now, but to jump from sort of level zero on the ladder to, you know, let's say level 100 of, of this advanced technological civilization we live in today is too much of a leap to do in one step. You need to have that knowledge that's structured that shows you um, how to go from one to the other and steadily pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and combine things with each other in, in different combinations. And if you were to design that, that sort of trajectory, that pathway from scratch, you might also start thinking about different entry points into that trajectory, depending on how hard we were hit and how devastated the world was by whatever the event was or how long it's been. How long have this dark age has lasted after the the, the apocalypse? Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I suppose we didn't just want to talk to you out of kind of general interest. There is a slight agenda here. So the knowledge was a popular popular fiction book intended to be interesting and informative and entertaining to a, to a broad audience. Yeah. But nonetheless, as you say, it would actually be quite useful to survivors in a, in a disaster, at least if this was the only way they could get this kind of information about how to design particular kinds of energy systems and various kinds of really important chemistry that most people know nothing about, but which under, underpin our world today. But yeah, I, I know that there's a bunch of billionaires out there basically who are open to funding a major effort to do the knowledge on an organizational scale with the sole goal, not, not of informing the, informing the general public about, <laughs> about chemistry and science yeah. and so on, but with the sole goal of actually aiding recovery from the worst kind of disasters uh, that we would face. So this could involve you know, potentially dozens of people rather than, rather than one person uh, working, working for a, uh, a couple of years. So yeah, for instance, the, the Future Fund, which has been covered on the, on the show before, 
is aiming to give away billions to projects, uh, including some under the, the heading infrastructure to recover after catastrophes. And, and they write when describing how they conceive of that as we want to ensure that humanity is in a position to recover from worst case catastrophes. For example, we'd like to make sure that humanity has reliable access to the tools, resources, skills and knowledge necessary to rebuild industrial civilization if there were a global nuclear war or a worst case a global pandemic. Uh, we'd be especially keen even to see civilizational recovery jewels, that is uh, attempts to rebuild key industrial technology with only the tools and knowledge available to survivors. This all sounds extremely reminiscent uh, of, <laughs> of the knowledge and uh, you might actually have done kind of <laughs> gone more in this direction than anyone else, at least as, at least as far as I know. So I'm curious to know, yeah, with the benefit of all of, the, all of that experience of writing the book and seeing the reactions to it, what do you what do you make of this idea? Yeah, as as you hinted at there, I I wrote the knowledge for people living today, for, for people walking down the high street and popping to bookshop and wanting to pick up something to read that, that was interesting. But genuinely, I, I mean this genuinely, if I knew an apocalypse was coming and I knew I was about to survive it, and I could put a single book into my bunker along with Sebastian and Tavina, I I would honestly put the knowledge in with me, because I think it it is a good encapsulation of many different areas of knowledge in a sort of structured, progressive way that you could use to recover. But it's only, you know, 300 pages long. It's only a tiny sliver of the actual information you would need. And there the are lots of slights of hands I had to use to sort of get the project to work and miss out entire sectors of knowledge, which would of course be useful. It's just a bit boring to read and will be too difficult to explain and in, in, in succinctly in a, in a popular science book. But I would be very, very keen, and maybe we should sit down after this interview and, and have a chat uh, with, with 80,000 hours about maybe putting into something, in, into some of these, these funds, about doing this in a more, in a more serious and in a more directed way. And, and there have been other projects looking to this sort of thing. There's the Global Village Constructor Kit um, that Marcin Jakubowski has been doing. Of It's, it's a sort of nice complement to the knowledge where it's not the understanding and the learning you need, it's a set of tools which are mutually uh, supportive and allow you to, to build each other. Um, so there are projects out there, but I think it would be a really interesting project to sit down and actually start planning out, scoping out the knowledge you would need and these different entry points in, into, the, into the pathway, into the trajectory, as I say. And one thing we, we did try a couple of times, in fact, a bunch of times when the, the knowledge came out, was to get a TV series off the back of it and, and do what you've said of just put a bunch of people on a desert island with some basic tools and say, right, go. When we come back in a year's time, and the cameramen will be following you around, but when we come back in a year's time, we want, you know, a city here or you to have reached some level of technological <laughs> sophistication. Um, and that, that TV programme hasn't been made, but I would give my left leg to watch it. I think that would be incredibly entertaining TV, but also a good sort of um, intellectual project to go through. How far could you actually get... With a, with a selected bunch of engineers and scientists and, and people with good knowledge, good know-how, the practical skills, working together in a team and a community to, to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Yeah, so if you imagine actually trying to take that TV show forward, uh, maybe not as a TV show, but as that intellectual project yeah. that we could learn a bunch from, what advice would you have for anyone trying to implement that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a big question. The thing I found most challenging when I was writing the book was to stop myself to keep jumping the gun about saying, well, of, of course, this must be an easy thing to do because I can pick it up for 99p from a supermarket. How can something that cheap represent something which is difficult or, or a technological achievement? And, and that is a trap. Like the, the only reason many things are cheap is because we have this entire industrialized infrastructure, like the, you know, the, the iceberg under, under the surface you can't see making things for us. 
So I think, I think the advice would be for, for people trying to go through this process for real is to really question every single axiom of our everyday life and the things behind the scenes that we need of what does this break down into and how do we make every single component and all those components and all the tools you need to make those components and the raw materials, you know, very quickly when you start, you know, sort of deconstructing the, the diagram like that, it, you know, it's millions and millions of parts all, all, all across the blueprints of, of, of things interacting with each other. Yeah, I guess I mean, that raises the, the question that you, you might have formed a view on how resilient society is to disruptions on availability to particular materials, particular chemicals, that, you know, a factory goes down somewhere yeah. that produces something that seems super essential. Do, do, do you have a, a take of whether society is maybe more resilient than it might seem or, or more fragile than it might seem? Yeah, we, we certainly saw this with the coronavirus pandemic, which was never going to collapse civilization, it was never going to be that severe an infection. But it certainly opened up a lot of people's eyes to the, you know, the, the fragility of, of our modern way of life and, and the way our civilization works at the moment with things like just-in-time delivery and raw materials being shipped across the planet to the other side of the world to be processed in one factory, to be taken all the way back again, to be assembled into something which you then pick up from your supermarket. And things were starting to disappear off the shelves. You know, people starting to worry, this thing I just take for granted and I rely upon, am I going to be able to buy it next week? It, with this minor disturbance to the global supply chain, and, and and you know, I think I think that for that reason, it was it was an interesting exercise for for us all to have gone through. Maybe the the, the coronavirus pandemic will be a good you know clarion call or, or sort of um, eye opener for a lot of people that perhaps you have been a little bit too smug in our modern world and, and us being unassailable. Because there's there's been modelling studies into this as well. People like Joseph Tainter have been looking into the robustness of, of civilizations over history. And the result seems to be that the more technologically advanced you get, the more sensitive uh, you are to, to a sudden collapse, but because of that interconnectivity, because of the domino effect and the cascade effects that it, that it sets up. Yeah, I guess the pandemic made me feel better about things in a way, because like so much was kind of shut down. And yet, there wasn't that much stuff that I couldn't get. <laughs> it was kind of impressive how smoothly things went. Of course, things could break down much more if, uh, you know, the, if the fatality rate is 10 times higher, which is totally, yeah. totally imaginable, yeah. then maybe it will be a very different story. But I suppose it made me think that society was a bit more resilient to minor disturbances or moderate disturbances than, than perhaps what I had, had envisaged. No, I mean, I, I would agree with you. It, it was irritating when I couldn't buy toilet roll for a week, but it wasn't going to fundamentally change my life. <laughs> and, and I think you're right. It was impressive seeing just how quickly governments and society responded to keep the essential services running, to keep, you know, the, the actual, the absolutely critical things like food getting onto the shelves. But, but like I say, it was, when, when you start talking about existential risks, the, these are orders of magnitude more than, than the coronavirus. You know, it's going to be quite a jolt to, to collapse global civilization. So you can imagine different stages perhaps of this project or, or different mm. different aspects of it so one is the encyclopedia version perhaps which is like collating all this information that people read in books that will hopefully be useful then i guess you've got the sort of testing phase or the trying to put it into practice ahead of time phase to see like uh you know uh whether once you actually try to do it you read this encyclopedia and you're like this is missing all of this essential <laughs> information that i actually needed it was like it's a beautiful book but uh not yeah. not actually that 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 useful so you could do this actually try to do it on an island uh, as a tv show or or, or otherwise um i guess another stage you could go to actually is trying to invent sort of new appropriate technologies ahead of time that might be suitable after an apocalypse 
you can imagine that there might be kind of variants on resilient technologies that we currently used in areas where it's hard to do replacement or repair or you don't have access to advanced technology as as easily. But basically, you could try to like think ahead of time about how should people do things differently after the apocalypse, even than what we're what we're doing today, and uh, and and writing a guide to them for that. Yeah, do you have a sense of like which of these stages is most lacking, or where they might be the most value added? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it is it is a great question again. I think the the important point here is something that, that you mentioned was the the appropriate technology or, or intermediate technology. There's no point telling someone that this band of survivors how to make something ultra-efficient or, or ultra-useful and ultra-capable if it's just too damned complicated to, to build in the first place. You have, to, you have to start small and then, you know, level up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, you know, for example, to pick, to pick, to pick an instance, to pick a specific example, something like a solar panel is an incredibly good way of generating electricity. You, you just point it towards the sky and depending, you know, what climate on the earth you live in, you get more or less electricity but it, but it doesn't really wear out, it doesn't really need that much maintenance, and it just generates free electricity for you, and you can build yourself some kind of off-grid settlement after, after the apocalypse. But betraying that simplicity is the fact that these photovoltaic cells we use nowadays actually use incredibly ultra-purified silicon in, in, their, in their wafers. And, and it's essentially the same technology as the sort of microchips used in a, in a computer. So it'd be very, very hard particularly if you're trying to go through a, a green reboot or for whatever reason you don't have access to fossil fuels or oil, to let's say leapfrog all the way to solar panels because they're very, very hard to, to make the, the silicon that purified in the first place. But there are other ways of utilising the sun's energy, the more appropriate technologies like solar concentrators, which use nothing more than mirrors. And it turns out the chemistry to making a mirror is pretty easy. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And you can you know, concentrate all that light onto a focal point and use it to heat water and run a steam engine or steam turbine or salt mixture to, to get to, to, to higher temperatures. So I think what, what I'd be really interested to see in, in this kind of intellectual project is thinking about what are the sectors of, of capability? What do you want to be able to do at different periods, different, uh, different points of your recovery? And how do you get there in a step which isn't too much of a leap? but then also isn't too short, that it's a meaningful step, a meaningful leapfrog that you couldn't have just stumbled upon yourself. And the other parameter to consider is, of course, all of this is dependent on exactly what caused the apocalypse, what state the world is in today. Are the large areas of radioactive wasteland after a global nuclear exchange? Or is it more of a biological hazard that killed the people but left the stuff behind? You know, These are going to be important factors in, in how you would go about recovering and indeed, how you would do some kind of recovery drill to, to practice to see how well it, it all works. Did you find a particular challenge when you were writing the book? Other, other than, of course, making it entertaining uh, and popular. <laughs> were there any kind of practical challenges to figuring out what people needed to know or how it ought to be presented in a way that would be useful? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's sort of two levels of answer there. There's how do you go about writing a book that purports to at least, the conceit is it contains everything you'd need for the whole world, and yet fit it into only 300, word, 300 pages and make it readable and entertaining. And I, I hint at already that there are a bunch of sleights of hand where I made things seem slightly easier than perhaps they really really would be, or just missed out things I like even mentioning. I think, in fact, the whole of mathematics gets a single footnote in the knowledge where I cover my back about why I've not included mathematics. And of course, of course, it's been fundamentally <laughs> useful and, and necessary and crucial for, for thousands of years. And, you know, mathematics was invented 
by an ancient Egyptians because it solved particular problems in, in agriculture, for example, and, and the calendar. So th- there was with those tricks in writing the knowledge, and I and I think there'll be very similar tricks that we needed to boil down and encapsulate the knowledge you would actually need to reboot civilization in, in a document or library that, that that wasn't you know unwieldingly large. Have people tried to put the book into practice? Uh, so, so you've gone out to a beach and, and made, made some glass. Have people tried to use it in other ways? And if they have, have they found that it was actually useful or found that there was lots of missing pieces that, uh, that hadn't been noticed? Yes, I did I, not just the Robinson Crusoe glass, but I did a whole bunch of sort of maker projects um, when I was researching the book so I could you know, speak from authority, speak from someone that actually tried to do this and then describe it from first hand about how to do it or, or what problems you, you might encounter along the way. But actually, I've been delighted to hear. You know, for me as an author, one of the most satisfying things imaginable is hearing back from people around the world who had no idea who they are. They're just pinging an email out of the blue saying, oh, hi, Lewis, found the book interesting. You know, good job. Thank, thanks for, for writing it. But every now and then I'll get an email from someone who runs a university course saying, look, it's been one of our course texts for, for a couple of years. The students love it. It you know, sort of really fires up their imagination about how to go back to basics and, and, and think things through from, from ground one. And, you know, every year I, I take out a, a bunch of the, the keenest undergraduates and we live in a forest for a weekend and try to put some of the, the things into practice. But I think, you know, th- those sort of wilderness skills, um, which I dabble with a little bit in the, in the beginning of the book, are one thing. But then to actually go through the process of, of recovering a society, the time frame you're now talking about isn't a few days or a few weeks. You know, it's years, if not, if not decades, if not generations and I think that's where you're going to have the, the sort of time problem of testing this or, or doing drills is you don't have a society if you have only 10 people, 100 people. A society is thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. So how would you do a drill with enough people to make it realistic, but also get the right spread of practical skills represented in, in that community? Do you think it's possible to design a sort of photovoltaic cell that's simple enough that people would be able to manufacture it with kind of much less technological sophistication than we have today? Or is that just not a thing the relevant physics allows? Yeah, so so photovoltaic cells are a really interesting case because they, they seem to be really simple technology. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wafer of, of silicon, you point towards the sun and it absorbs the energy and gives you electricity at the, at the other end. But actually the technology behind it is is, is pretty advanced, actually. And, and to get a wafer of silicon, which is pure enough to get that photovoltaic effect to be able to generate meaningful current, is basically the same technology as microchips and, and, and sort of computer chips. So it, it has been positive. People have, have talked about the possibility of leapfrogging right over an industrial revolution based on coal and steam engines and going straight to green technologies, to, to solar panels. But I just can't convince myself that's possible. To, 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 to get a society which is already technologically advanced enough to be able to create the solar panel kind of presupposes it's got the energy in the first place. You get a bit of a chicken and the egg problem, I think, there. But you can use the sun's energy in, in other ways other than photovoltaics. You can use something as simple as a mirror, and then the chemistry behind making mirrors is very, very easy. Focus them all on, onto a point, boil water, run a steam turbine, heat, you know, sort of mixtures of salts to get to very high temperatures. But there's, there's still one thing which you absolutely need in society, which is hard to do even with big solar concentrators, and that's getting a lot of, of thermal energy all in the same place 
for things like smelting metals or creating concrete. And, and that's the problem that we've still yet to solve satisfactory in, in the modern world for using more solar energy for not generating electricity, but creating the materials and substances that we need in, in our society. Okay, so, so it sounds like, I mean, you could imagine that we're producing PV cells the way we are today because we can. But actually, yeah. there's a worse version of PV cells that you could produce with less pure silicon. It's like a more basic bargain, bargain basement version of a, of a cell that still produces electricity from the sun. But I guess you're saying actually, the version of that that is practical is the mirrors to boil water to turn a turbine to, to make electricity. That's the, that's the basic version that they would realistically reach for if they had to use solar. Yeah, I, th- I suspect there's probably something of a, of a steep step function of the electricity generated by impure wafers of, of silicon. I mean, you're basically talking about sort of sand and you don't get much electricity yeah. out, of, out of a bucket of sand. So I, I think it, it's not going to scale linearly. You're going to have to get it pretty, pretty pure before it is useful or meaningful in, in, in any sense. But yeah, there are, there are simpler ways of using the, the sun's energy um, yeah. without using photovoltaics to give you a, a direct current. Yeah. Along the same lines, yeah, in, in the book, you basically say that you think the first energy source that people should be reaching for other than fossil fuels is using hydropower and wind energy, which is basically yeah. like these natural, using these natural forces to turn a turbine, which you can then use either for mechanical work, like people have done throughout history for, for thousands of years, or, or to produce electricity. Because uh, if you can spin a turbine, then, then you've got an electricity source with, a, with the right magnet set up. Do you think it would be possible to pre-prepare kind of schematics for simpler wind generators or hydro generators that could be built and maintained with sort of more medieval levels of technology, but which would be like actually pretty good at generating energy? Well, this is it. Hydropower and wind power are ancient technologies. We, we exploited them first for grinding flour and, and timber mills. And the, the, the idea played with in terms of this sort of steampunk reboot process and, and the knowledge was if you combine that medieval technology, i.e. easily reachievable technology, with modern knowledge, which is actually quite simple if, if only you know the secret to it, you know, sort of electromagnetism and magnets and, and copper wires, you could create a windmill that looks medieval, but is spinning a, a generator to create electricity for you. You'd have this sort of steampunk electro windmill type mashup. And, and so what you would want if you were to do this genuinely is you could relatively easy, I think, prepare schematics, construction diagrams, blueprints of how to create a turbine, which is not quite as efficient as the 100 meter tall ones you see dotted across the countryside, but is still a lot more more superior to uh, sort of Dutch 16th century design and give all the wiring diagrams to the generator and tell people how to make an electromagnet and, and make the thing work. And indeed, a lot of that information resource already exists. And I was mining it um, when I was writing the knowledge, because there is a huge library, huge repository of information that's been built up by the appropriate technology community, by the intermediate technology community. Um, I downloaded something like 10 gigabytes worth of, of a lot of them are microfilms that have been scanned. Others were sort of PDFs. I, th- I think a Propopedia is, is a website you can access all through today. And 70, 80% of it I found useless uh, 10% it was interesting and then sort of, you know, 5% was, was absolute gold dust. And it, was a, it was a process when I was writing the book of sort of reading it all and sifting through the, the actual useful stuff. So I think were you to go through this process of creating a genuine handbook for rebooting civilization from scratch, you wouldn't have to go 
right back to the beginning to create that. There was a lot of information that you could you could draw upon and, and repurpose and reframe it in the most useful way for, for the question at hand, rather than, you know, sort of a 1970s textbook written intended to be used in sub-Saharan Africa. You could you could adapt what, what already exists. Yeah. Yeah, that it feels like a minute ago you were saying that there's reason to think that some of the solar and other renewable energy sources might not be enough to do some of the critical energy intensive things we'd want to be doing. And in a 2015 article you wrote, Out of the Ashes, which we'll link to, uh, you talk about some specific challenges humanity would face having used up a lot of the readily available coal and oil. Yeah. Um, so my colleague, Will McCaskill, is writing a forthcoming, well, he's written a forthcoming <laughs> book called What We Are the Future, um, which you and I actually both contributed to a little yeah. bit. And it argues, among other things, that, yeah, this is an important reason to get off fossil fuels ASAP so that there's some left over for our descendants in a post-disaster scenario. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, so again, it, it sort of comes down to which axioms you want to play around with. What was the exact scenario that necessitated everyone starting again, again from scratch? What, what state do you find the world in? And, and you can play around some of those parameters like, is there still going to be crude oil underground? Yes or no? Well, even if there's not easy accessible crude oil, there's still lakes of the stuff held in you know, petrochemical refining stations around the world. So would you be able to get access to those? Or have they all leaked away? Or have they burnt? Or you know, how long has it been since the collapse before you're, you're, you're trying to recover? And oil, I think, is a, is a simpler answer because I suspect we would struggle to get access to lots of oil starting again. Like, like geologically, there's not a great deal of oil left because we've got very good at extracting it up until now. Whereas coal is a very different matter, there are megatons of coal. There is a plenty of coal left underground, and you would only need to open cast mine it. It's relatively easy to get to. But for that um, Aeon article, I was playing with the idea of, well, let's imagine that doesn't exist. Let's imagine that the collapse happens 100 years, 200 years in the future, or for whatever reason, you are trying to recover society in a part of the world where you're not within walking distance of, of an open cast coal mine. What alternatives might, might you go through? Um, what you'd be able to use. And I talked about charcoal and how you could use that to smelt metals. And indeed, it's not just a thought experiment because a large fraction of the steel that's being smelted in Brazil, I think, is done using charcoal. But they have a lot of natural wood resources and they, they use them sustainably and they, they make metal from, from their forests. So you, you could go through that process if you needed to. And of course, Charcoal is what we used before coal in the first place. You would just be stepping back to a slightly simpler technology and not having to really reinvent anything uh, again. Yeah, I suppose I came away from the from the book and that article, yeah, also having the same intuition that energy was going to be the big challenge for people after after the apocalypse. But I suppose I felt kind of cautiously optimistic that they'd be able to cobble together a bunch of different solutions that you were suggesting and kind of make things work. I mean, in order to, to get really high temperatures to do industrial processes, you're saying we could use charcoal kind of like we used to. Currently, we can't do or like that's not practical to do it on a large scale because we need that land for food because there's yeah, 8 yeah. billion people mouths to feed one one benefit they'll have after the apocalypse is there's a lot less need for food and so there'll be more uh, land available to grow trees to make charcoal to, to run this kind of stuff and also i guess was, i just have this economics intuition as someone who studied <laughs> economics that you know the prices will move charcoal becomes more expensive yeah. you know we'll economize on our use of these industrial processes that require really high temperatures and you know It'll be it'll be horrible, but uh, people will find a way to kind of make things livable. Yeah, I mean that's it. That if, but by its very nature, an apocalypse 
kind of presupposes a mass depopulation event. So there'll be a lot of free land available that is currently growing grain to, to feed mouths. And you wouldn't even need to plant forests to chop them down for charcoal. It will rewild in, in a decade or two anyway. The forest will grow back over, over the, the farms. So you, you, would, you would have access to lots of wood, I think, at least in the early days as you recover. And then your own population of your rebooting society will, will start growing again. And you'll start hitting exactly the same basic sort of land use threshold that we start encountering in Britain in, you know, as early as the Elizabethan age. Of, of We had chopped down all the forests near the cities and towns. And so the price of fuel, the price of wood was starting to go up, which was starting that process towards looking, looking for alternatives, i.e. cop. Yeah, I was I was interested in talking a bit about practical adjustments we could make make now basically to make society more resilient in the future. So we can imagine a scenario where humanity faces some severe shock, but it's on the borderline between a situation where we experience a series of cascading failures versus get our act together while we still have access to pre-disaster technology and rebuild in a kind of orderly fashion. In that kind of case, what are some ways that we can organize things now that might make a difference between those two futures? Yeah, so I, th- I think the idea here is that can you engineer the situation so that you fail gracefully? That, that if you have just experienced a, a catastrophic shock, rather than the whole system snapping and, and you know fracturing completely, can you cushion the fall slightly or catch your fall so you don't regress too far before pulling yourself right. back up? And without wanting to bat away the question, because I do think it's a good one, I wouldn't know how to go about answering it. Because again, I think it's so dependent on what was the event in the first place? What is the scenario we find ourselves in? Um, how many people have died? How many, you know, what were nation states are now at war with each other over the resources that, that they are looking for the, for their own population? I mean, other than things we, we've already talked about, such as saving not just libraries of useful information, that tell people how to go back to a slightly simpler state and slightly lower technological level and, and, and pull them back up, but repositories of the most useful tools as well. Mm-hmm. Things that, that again, to link back to appropriate technology, things that you could you could repair perhaps at the village level rather than having to send back to a factory in China to, to get it repaired and, and you know, start, start breaking some of those ties of, of the, the global transport of things around the world and, and make it a bit more, a bit more local. And I mean, again, to, to link this to sort of current affairs, the EU as a whole and, and the world and in general as well are starting to address where do we get our oil from? Do we continue getting it from Russia? Because this is now very problematic. Do we try to sever our connection with oil, at least Russian oil, and try to find it elsewhere? Or, and, and you can probably guess what, what my point of view is, do we take this opportunity to fundamentally change the question and, and look how we can not use oil at all? Can we go much more towards renewables, to hydropower, to, to wind, to solar? Can we break our alliance on something that we get from another nation state, which they then basically use as, as political leverage? And so a lot of these, these topics in current affairs do link very, very directly to people looking at catastrophe studies and, and, and rebooting. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're different aspects of the same coin. Yeah, nice. Are there are there other examples of things you might change about the way we organize society today um, that you think might make us more likely to build back during that grace period rather than fall apart? So things like less electrification, um, not using, well, sometimes we use sterile seeds, electrical grid robustness, anything else? So I think, 
I'm not sure the answer is to try to fundamentally change society. I expect every member of the population to change their lifestyle. Because I wonder if that might be impossible because we've not been able to do that in any really meaningful way to address the problem of climate change, which is already happening and people already appreciate the dangers of. And to now, to, to try to get people to, to come on board a slightly more abstract hazard, which is, well, we don't want the whole of civilization to collapse completely, so we're going to fundamentally change how we live our lives. I, I just see that being a hard sell. And I wonder if a better approach would be to not try to change every member of the public, but to put into place centres or, or seeds or kernels that could be used and, and sort of activated if the need uh, arises. And we, we've talked about libraries of information, we talked about repositories of tools and, you know, sort of disaster preparedness, you would have a bunch of generators in, in a warehouse somewhere. So, so we could store things that would be rolled out if the catastrophe starts happening. But I don't think the solution is try to change society as a whole in preparation. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about, well, I think there's probably a few, like a few bits of low hanging fruit here. Yeah. Uh, Cause on the margin, I think there's some stuff that we do today, which is, which is like, you know, slightly cheaper for us now, but looks catastrophic from a, like a resilience point of view. Uh, I suppose, yeah. W- one example is uh, it seems like we're making more and more things like, you know, tractors, cars, like internet connected in such a way where these items begin to break down and stop functioning. If you don't have access to a computer to, to debug them or yeah. like, or, or they can't get regular patches from the internet or <laughs> that they start complaining and then, and then break down. And people after the apocalypse might not be able to get their cars working uh, <laughs> just so that we could like, you know, slightly do some better like patent control for, for Tesla's vehicles uh, by, yeah, by yeah, having yeah. their software updates all the time. That's one where I wonder, you know, legally, maybe we should just say, look, unfortunately, all of these essential equipment, it has to be able to operate even if it never connects to the Internet again, because there's a possibility that the Internet will disappear and we still need to have tractors. <laughs> well, I think that's a great point, Rob, and it links quite closely to the sort of right to repair. So that there's been a change in the legislation yeah. in the UK. Mm. And... That absolutely is a great idea because, it, you know, it, it, again, it breaks the bond slightly between the manufacturer and the person that sold something to you. You should be able to take it to anyone to repair, if not have a go at repairing it yourself. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, wonderful sort of repair cafes and organizations have set up to show people how to fix things when they break, to, to reestablish that connection between, you know, you know ourselves and, and our technology. So, you know, you're right, Rob, there, there, there are sort of, there are low hanging fruits. There are, there are little things we can start changing. Yeah, maybe another. So, how big an issue do you think it would be that, like, so most farms are currently sowing seeds where you can't then uh, harvest the seeds of those crops and then yeah. sow them again because yeah, yeah. they're basically they, they just become rapidly sterile because, it, I mean, yeah, for reasons I guess we won't go into. But it means, it makes me wonder, you know, after, after the apocalypse, once these fantastic factories that are producing these very high yielding but sterile seeds disappear, will we have enough seeds to sow the next crop that we're gonna, that we're gonna need? And will people be able to find the seeds that they need in order to to resume agriculture. Yes, I don't think the solution is to stop using these hybrid crops because the reason we use them is they are so fabulously high yielding. And and we we need that nowadays to feed the world population that we have. So, So I don't think the solution is to change how we are currently doing things. I think the solution is more, let's just be sensible about this and keep a repository of a simple alternative to go back to, to have like a save file on our computer in case we ha- ever have to go back to it. And, and that would be as basic as, you know, sort of ancient Egyptian technology of having some granaries, some, some warehouses stocked with heirloom crop seeds, not these hybrid crop seeds that you can crack open and go back to if you need to, if you start needing to have sort of, you know, regenerative farming where you can 
keep back seed corn and, and plant it next year rather than going back to, to the hybrids each time. Because you're right, you, you really don't want to start losing crops because each of those represents technology which has taken thousands of years to develop of, of, of selective breeding. Yeah. I guess that, I guess another line of pre-preparation uh, that we could talk about is currently being done by this interesting group called the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters. Mm. There's this kind of like medium-sized organization now that's trying to find ways to feed people after a nuclear war. For instance, I think we've interviewed the founder of this group twice on the show. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, yeah, yeah. A, he's a fascinating chap. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he's a, he's, a, he's a crowd favorite uh, <laughs> as a guest. Yeah, well, one of the strategies they're really keen on at the moment is converting cellulose in wood, which would be really abundant after a disaster, into sugars that humans can actually digest by, you know, pummeling it down into, into something like you're going to make paper and then using bac- yeah. bacteria to digest it until it's sugar and then, then humans can drink it. I guess another idea is using seaweed, which grows really fast and, and could deal with, you know, colder weather after a nuclear winter. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, do, do you have any thoughts of whether such a project is viable? Yeah, I'd, I'd love the idea of... So I think it might be slightly harder to create, like, sort of wood pulp to then have, like, wood-digesting bacteria to create the sugars which which you then eat. And I, and I think it might have come from the all-fed organisation that, that we're talking about this, that actually there are already organisms that are extremely good at breaking down wood to make food, and, and they are mushrooms. They're, they're sort of toadstools and stuff. So if you need to very quickly scale up creating food when for whatever reason agriculture isn't working as effectively maybe the skies are still dark or it's still quite cold after a nuclear winter you would just push over a forest use bulldozers to level a forest bash it up a bit and then start trying to you know sort of seed uh, or culture toadstools and mushrooms in it and let those organisms break down what is human in inedible substance um, subsistence and, and create great food with it Another interesting idea that, that I came across from um, Vinay Gupta, I'm not sure if you've come across him. He's, he's another fascinating slash very scary person to, to chat with. And he made the point to me when I was, when I was interviewing him for, for the book, for the knowledge, is that we already have an infrastructure which is exceedingly good at getting animals in a farm to food on the plate. And, and particularly, this is the, the fast food restaurants like uh, McDonald's, they are incredibly efficient because it you know, improves their profit margin of, of that particular pipeline, that particular process. And he calculates, I can't remember what, what the number was, but we have at least several months worth of human sustenance that is, that is still on the hoof. And if you were, I mean, this would be a problem for vegetarians and vegans, but if your life depended on it, you could eat, you know, mince meat for several months with just the, the, the livestock that, that is around today. And then after that, you know, you're in dire straits because you've got no livestock at all. It's going to be hard to, to recover again. But, but there are these really interesting ways of looking at how can we just fill that critical stop gap while we get other things up, up and running? And importantly, how can we use what we already have to provide that for us rather than having to quickly reinvent something or, or, or create something anew? Yeah, I think actually um, mushrooms was the thing that Denkenberger was originally yeah. obsessed with. There's this beautiful quote from some book where it was saying, oh, humans will die out and mushrooms will will inherit the earth after <laughs> after an asteroid hits the earth. And he was like, mushrooms? Is it Rupert Sheldrake, maybe? Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the source. We'll look it up. But anyway, I think most people's reaction is to go, huh, interesting. Uh, but, but, but Dave's reaction was to say, shouldn't we just eat the mushrooms? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Humans can eat mushrooms. I, th- I think they might have gone to this cellulose to sugar conversion because maybe it has a higher efficiency or maybe it's easier to scale up. There, there's some issues with mushrooms, I think, including people don't like to eat only mushrooms. <laughs> Although I don't know whether yeah, we but... enjoy eating cellulose to sugar slurry either. But... Well, it is exactly. And I mean, this links nicely into the sort of astrobiology research I do as well. And how do we keep humans alive on Mars? 
because you're not going to be growing fields of wheat and you're not going to be having cows and chickens on Mars. So it's, it's can we feed humans microbially generated food? Can you grow bacteria in great big bioreactors? Can you grow algae with Martian sunlight and, and, and have human food from that? And the answer, <laughs> overwhelmingly, is, well, it, you'd survive on it, but it'd be a pretty grim existence because it just tastes minging. You would be literally eating pond scum green mush that's got no flavor it doesn't taste like anything in, in, in food from from everyday life right and it would just you know in terms of the mental health of eating the same thing day in day out is is is, is a genuine problem to try to be getting over for colonizing mars as much as rebooting after a cat- catastrophe on earth yeah i guess they might have to bring an enormous amount of artificial sweetener with them on the uh, on the on the <laughs> on the jet to mars it could end yeah, up being or, a surprisingly or, or genetic important engineer a bacterium that creates mm. a flavor which you then oh. you, those flavor compounds um you then yeah, it grows its own with, msg with or something like that <laughs> yes yeah exactly yeah get the get the umami in there yeah are there any other resilient or unconventional food sources that people might might underrate Denkenberger's group has actually done contract work for NASA, I think, to try to try to look at these methane-growing yeah. bacteria, uh, which which would be potentially really useful in in space, basically. So that's it. Yeah, it's an interesting one to work on. I, I think that there's also bacteria that can grow just from electricity. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, th- these these ones are a little bit unusual. I think it probably wouldn't be large food sources post-apocalypse. But yeah, it is very interesting to think that in future we might be able to kind of go more directly from sunlight to food than we currently like. So photosynthesis uses like less than 1% of the energy that's actually hitting the plant. It's an incredibly inefficient process. And we have much better ways of capturing energy into electricity now. And now we just find, need to find the second step of converting electricity into human edible into, food. Into food. No, absolutely. But again, I think, I think many of these solutions have already existed. And people have been eating microalgae for thousands of years. You know, the, the Incans were growing ponds, ponds full of... Um, Oh man, what's the name of the? What's the, it's, it's sort of like a health food. You go into a, like all food health food shop, and they'll have um, these little green tablets of processed microalgae. Begins with species. Spirulina. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. People have been growing spirulina for, for thousands of years. Oh yeah. And people yeah, are now yeah. looking to how could we adapt that for living on Mars, or it could be adapted to feeding people quickly if, for whatever reason, normal crops crops aren't growing. Backing up just a second, you raised the possibility that we have like, yeah, we have food that actually might sustain us, but that actually the mental health costs of eating foods that have no flavor could be really big. Were there other times when you were writing the knowledge where you were like, okay, this is possible, but there's some social factor that's going to make this really hard, or I'm going to explain how you do this in practice, but like people, people are going to make this actually much harder than it sounds um, from the physics. Yeah, so I I made an early decision with the knowledge that the conceit I was going with, this is going to be a popular science book. I, I will explain the science and the engineering to reboot a civilization. But of course, it, it's more than just knowledge. There's all the psychology and sociology. And I drafted out a chapter that included a sort of po-faced 10-step guide to bootstrapping a democracy for yourself. And then I kind of scrambled up the piece of paper and chucked across the room, realizing like, it doesn't matter what you tell people when it comes to things like that. Because first, it's whoever's got the biggest gun gets to, to make those decisions. But, but also on, on a full, sort of longer scale, societies need to develop organically to be ready for things like democracy. I, I wonder if that's, that's going to be a very hard thing to leapfrog to, because it only emerged under quite strange circumstances in our own global history so far. But that isn't true of, of science and technology. You, you can tell, tell someone how to solve a problem that is a universal problem. How do I make, how do I make sure I don't starve to death? How can I make materials which are flexible and strong, which are good for making tools? How do I do some basic chemistry 
to create acids that, that I can, you know, transform things with. And then those problems are universal, whether it's 10,000 BC or 10,000 AD, and you can provide the solution for that. But I did toy with leaving certain knowledge out of the knowledge, leaving certain information out of the book, such as gunpowder. You know, it's a relatively easy, somewhat easy thing to tell someone how to make, but should I perhaps make the moral decision to keep the genie in the bottle, as it were, to, to not release that again? And then I realised when, when I thought about it is that any technology is neither good or evil. It's the application you, you put that towards. And, and the technology of gunpowder, yes, you can put it into bombs, you can use it to make firearms and muskets, but also it's absolutely indispensable for quarrying and for mining and opening up canals and, and transforming the landscape that your society is, is trying to live in. So I think, again, if we were going through this process for real and, and, and plotting out a pathway of how, how, do you, how you could recover, I don't think anything should be left off the table. Even things which can be used for dangerous means, I think you've got to put in, into this sort of handbook and allow the society itself to decide do we adopt this technology or do we reject it? In exactly the same way that we have these conversations today. Are we going to accept genetically engineered crops or are we going to, are we going to reject them? Yeah, the book is relatively light on social science, which I think was a, was a good call because it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably hard. a bunch harder to... It's hard stuff. It's really hard, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, engineers think they have it hard, but yeah, being an economist, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the real stressful job. But yeah, I, I mean, one area of knowledge that I think actually would be quite useful to people and is not straightforward is macroeconomics. So what kind of currency should you use? How should you ensure that there's not too much or too little currencies so that you like neither have hyperinflation nor, you know, are you creating recessions unnecessarily? I, that's not going to be the main issue in the first few months after <laughs> apocalypse but like in the first few years it does become relevant that you it is actually possible to create recessions artificially and to like damage the recovery by doing monetary policy wrong and so we should have a few pages on that no so as i said one of the joys of, of being an uh, being an author is having people contact you out the blue and and say they found it interesting or you know tell you something you hadn't realized but the number of emails i got from people saying oh but you missed out this incredibly important thing and i said no <laughs> of course i you are absolutely right you can't build a society without leadership or without psychology or without macroeconomics. It's just you've only got so much you can put, you know, between the front page and, and, and the back page. And perhaps I'll get around to, to writing, you know, knowledge, knowledge, the, the sequel, the, the second right. book <laughs> that, that includes things like macroeconomics. Is there anything you definitely want to put in there? Yeah. So I, I said one of the big things I left out of, out of the knowledge was mathematics for the reason that... <laughs> Simply the reason I thought it'd be hard to make it interesting. <laughs> right. But maths is going to be a lot of sort of equations and diagrams, and it is fundamentally important. And a lot of maths textbooks make a, make a, do a good job of explaining why Pythagoras is important for making sure that your, your field is square and you can calculate the area of it when you're, you know, reestablishing your farms after the Nile River is flooded and, and things like this. Like maths was developed for a reason. Maths is a tool as much as, as, a, as, a, as an axe is a tool for, for clearing farmland for you. It's just really hard to explain in anything other than a textbook way. Unlike <laughs> things like, guys, concrete. You might think it's boring, but actually it's the most amazing material <laughs> you've ever come across. It's like magic liquid stone. So I, so I avoid a certain topics because either they're too hard or I thought it'd be too boring to, to write about and, and then for people to read about. But to go through this process genuinely, of course, you need to have a section of your library on maths and, and what you use that maths for rather than just making it abstract it's got to be practical and pragmatic and other things like macroeconomics as you, as you were saying yeah you mentioned earlier this um 
appropriate technology community, which which yeah. you were drawing on a whole lot. I actually don't know that much about that, so I should go away and learn maybe about this about this group. Like I've got ten gigs. I can I can send you over, pal. Okay. Keep it <laughs> keep it going for the for your summer reading. Yeah, maybe I might be able to do one gig. Um, <laughs> do, uh, are there any th- tools that they've come up with that you're a particular fan of that maybe should get a little bit more play? I mean, there is one interesting example I came across of kind of appropriate technology, but also this wonderful area of bodging and sort of hacking things together uh, that, that plays along, again, TV shows like Junkyard Wars or Scrap Heap Challenge. And a company devised a incubator that you can use in hospitals for premature babies because there's a huge problem because it's quite high tech. They're difficult to maintain if you don't have that expert specialist knowledge. So it, it's a, it's a, it was a prime area for appropriate technology. And this company designs a baby incubator using only common car parts you know, that you could get from any Ford dealership or any Volkswagen dealership on the planet. And it used those sort of standardized replaceable parts to create this incubator. And the idea being that it's not only simple to make with locally sourceable uh, components, but any local car mechanic can then repair it for you. And you don't need to either send it off to get repaired or fly someone in to, to repair it. And I'd say that there's a whole area and you can very much fall down the, you know, Alice's rabbit hole of this, of, of these great examples of appropriate technology and just people being ingenious and resourceful with, with how you can reappropriate things and, and use things in slightly different ways from what their primary intention might have, might have been designed as. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you've been very generous with your time, but uh, you're, you're a new parent, so I <laughs> can't do one of our four or five hour <laughs> marathon interviews. But yeah, um, fi- final one is these days, a major research focus for you is uh, astrobiology, as you were saying uh, at, the, at the beginning, you know, the search for life off of Earth and understanding where and how life has arisen or where it might arise in future. Yeah, it's a, it's a surprisingly lively area with a lot of ongoing research. I know you've yeah. been advising space agencies on what data they could collect that could, could be really useful. What's something that we've learned in astrobiology over the last 10 years that you think is really significant? Yes, I think astrobiology has been really taking off it. I mean, it's massively launched itself as a, as a discipline. And, you know, NASA was, was launching astrobiology missions back in the 1970s with the Viking landers to Mars. And it went through a bit of a, a, bit of a dark ages. It kind of receded a bit. And it is really going from strength to strength at the moment. And I think that's because we've been making huge advances in, in three main areas, what, what I call the three E's. And we've been discovering um, extrasolar planets, so planets orbiting other suns in our galaxy. And as our techniques get better and our, and our telescopes become more, more sensitive, we're finding more and more Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. You know, it's, it's not inconceivable that in the next couple of years we'll have found a true twin of our homeworld, another Earth-like planet. Within my particular discipline of biology and extremophiles, we've been finding ultra-hardy organisms surviving in environments on Earth that no one previously thought could, could be colonised, could be, could be inhabited. And these extremophiles therefore teach us about the, the sort of habitable limit, the habitable range of, of biology, and therefore what environments on Mars, for example, Europa, we might be able to find life. And then third is, is explorers. Our robotic technology has got so good that you can effectively miniaturise an entire lab onto a set of wheels, slap some solar panels on the, on the back of it, some cameras on the front, and have our automated roboticized laboratory drive around Mars and analyse samples for us. And as I say, we've been making enormous advances in each of those three areas, such that if there is life on Mars, I think that it is a genuine possibility we'll have that unambiguous proof um, within our lifetime, hopefully within my career. Hopefully it's something I can, I can uh, remain involved in. 
Well, that's uh, stuff to look forward to, at least as long as we live in a world where we don't need the knowledge in the future. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, well, exactly. Let's hope we never need the book. Our guest today has been Lewis Dartnell. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Lewis. Thanks, Harry. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Just a quick reminder that here at 80,000 Hours, we recently started a free book giveaway, which you can take advantage of at 80,000hours.org slash free book. There's three books on offer. The first is The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity by Oxford philosopher Toby Ord, which we discussed with him in episode 72. That one is about the greatest threats facing humanity today and the strategies that we can use to hopefully safeguard our future. The second book is called 80,000 Hours, Find a Fulfilling Career That Does Good by Benjamin Todd. That's a book version of our guide to planning your career. And the third is Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism and How You Can Make a Difference by Will McCaskill. We pay for the shipping on those, of course, and can send physical books to almost anywhere in the world. If, like me, you prefer audiobooks, though, then we can offer you an audio copy of The Precipice, though unfortunately not the other two just yet. The only thing you need to do to get one of those free books is sign up to our email newsletter. On average, we send about one newsletter email a week, usually letting you know about some new research about high-impact careers that's gone up on the website, or about a new batch of job opportunities that's going up on our job board. The email newsletter is pretty great. But if you decide you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. And indeed, if you just want a book, I give you approval to immediately unsubscribe after ordering your book. That is totally legit. We actually launched this giveaway a bit earlier in the year, but we had to delay announcing it to all of you because the offer was so popular that our poor book orderers were flat out shipping all the books that people had already asked for and likely weren't in a position to handle the influx from all of you podcast listeners. But fortunately, that group has increased their capacity and so are now standing by to quickly turn around your requests. If you'd like to take advantage of that and get one of those books, then just head to 80,000hours.org slash freebook. Of course, we'd be more than happy for you to tell your friends about the giveaway if one or maybe maybe more than one of them might be interested in getting one of those books. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available for this episode and all of our episodes on our website, and those are put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.